I'm delighted that you've made it your decision to be here this morning. We have a good number present. We have a number of visitors, and we're glad especially that you've come and hope you can come back and be with us again. I encourage you to get your Bible and turn with me if you have a Bible with you. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapters 5 through 7 is what we well recognize as being the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. The greatest sermon that was ever preached by the greatest preacher there ever was. There was none any better. In this mountain message, Jesus has many comparisons to what others thought and what others did with a challenge to do better. Now, I recognize that throughout that contrast, in chapter 5 particularly, there is, it has been said, or you have heard it said, that there are direct quotations from the Old Testament, and there are times he's quote, uh, contrasting the Old Testament to the New Testament, and this is my law now. This is the New Testament law. But there are some things wherein he's contrasting them things that the Pharisees believed, the Pharisees had said, the things Pharisees had done to the kingdom law that he is proclaiming in chapters 5 through 7. Let's look at verse 20 of Matthew chapter 5. For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Notice Jesus says, your righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. One only needs a smattering knowledge of the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees to understand it wouldn't take a great deal to exceed their righteousness. And you'll see how that's the case in a moment. So Jesus talks about exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. There's three things we want to define. What is he talking about when he talks about righteousness? And when he talks about the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, and your righteousness needs to exceed that. He's talking about how one strives to be right. This is how they were striving to be right before God. Their means of doing that, their method of doing that, their attempt to do that is something that you need to exceed. Secondly, we need to talk about exceed. What does exceed mean? It means to go beyond, to surpass, to excel, to outstrip. You need to exceed what the Pharisees and the scribes did with reference to their striving to be right with God. You need to do better than that. You need to surpass that. You need to excel that. You need to outstrip that. So here is the challenge before us. The challenge is not in quantity, but the challenge is in type and in kind. So when Jesus is saying, you need to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, he's not saying you need to do just a little bit more than they did. If they did four in something, you need to do at least five or four and a half so that you're doing better than they are. If they made a 10, you need to do 11. That's not what he's saying. Not in quantity. That if they did three righteous acts, you need to do four. That's not what he's saying. But we need to exceed and excel and outstrip in type and in kind. A different kind of seeking to be right before God than what you saw with the scribes and the Pharisees. So let's talk about exceeding in righteousness based on Matthew 5 and in verse 20. Again, the text says, I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, we can forget going to heaven, forget being in the kingdom of God currently, forget being in fellowship with God if our 
self-righteousness doesn't outstrip the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Let's look at seven different things by way of contrast. Here's the first. We'll contrast what they did on the one hand and what God expects of us on the other hand. Let's talk about they. They refers to the scribes and the Pharisees of chapter 5 and verse 20. They were good theorists, but poor practitioners. They were good theorists, but poor practitioners. What do we mean by that? Well, they taught, but did not do. Let's go to Matthew chapter 23. Now, when you were at Matthew chapter 5, you probably were thinking, when we talked about the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you have to be thinking about this scathing rebuke of chapter 23, because this exposes their righteousness. Here is what they did, verses 1 to 3. He spoke to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees, that's our subject matter, said in Moses' seat, Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. What do you mean he said in Moses' seat? They try to tell you what Moses said. They try to instill in you to follow the law of God. Well, when they tell you that, that you observe and do, if they're citing the law of God, if they're citing the law of Moses. That observe and do. But do not according to their works, for they say and do not do. Now notice what he just said. They say and they do not do. What he's saying is, when, when they take the law of God and they point out, you need to keep the Sabbath. When the Sabbath was binding, then you need to keep the Sabbath. When they tell you to love your neighbor, then you need to love your neighbor because they're showing you from the revelation of God. But don't do like they do though. Well, why do you say that Jesus? Because they taught... But they didn't do what they taught. They may teach love your neighbor, but they didn't love their neighbor. They may teach that you are to be forgiving, but they wouldn't be forgiving. They may teach you ought to be kind, but they wouldn't be kind. They would teach you ought not steal, but they may be stealing themselves. They were good theorists, but poor practitioners. Now how can we exceed that? Well, we are to preach or practice what we teach and teach what we practice. The doctrine of Christ. In other words, we're to put our money where our mouth is. We're to practice what we preach. In other words, it's not talking about whether you are a full-time preacher, but when we proclaim something and we cite the book of God, we're preaching to someone. And when we tell them, this is what the Bible says we are to do, this is how God wants you to live, we need to practice what we preach. Let's go to Matthew chapter 7. Same sermon, same preacher. Let's go to chapter 7 now. In chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Here is one who's claiming to be righteous. Lord, Lord, he's my, he's my leader. He's my ruler. But he doesn't do what he says. Good theorist to a practitioner. But he says, it's the one who does the will of my Father. Now, verse 22, many will say to me in that day, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and in, in your name cast out demons and in your name done many wonderful works? You see, we're doing great things and we're telling others to do great things. And then he would say at verse 23, depart from me, I never knew you. Let's go to the book of James, chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. He said, be doers of the word and not hearers, only deceiving yourselves. If I'm listening to the truth, acknowledge the truth, even tell someone else that is the truth, that's not enough. Be doers of the word. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like the man who beholds his natural face in a glass. And he observes himself and goes away and forgets all of that. He doesn't do anything that God would have him to do. Let's go to one more passage along that line. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and in verse 16. As you're turning there, this is advice to young Timothy. And what Paul is telling young Timothy, a young preacher of the gospel, here's how you can be effective as a teacher. The scribes and Pharisees were teachers. They were trying to teach. 
But Timothy, here's what you need to do to be an effective teacher. Look at verse 16. Chapter 4, verse 16. Take heed to yourself and to your doctrine and continue in them. For in doing this, you'll save both yourself and those that hear you. You, you take what you're teaching and you make application to yourself and you continue to practice what you're teaching and you're going to save yourself and those that hear. Now, when we don't do that, what people see is hypocrisy. Let's go to Romans chapter 2, verse 24. Chapter 2 is devoted to the hypocrisy of the Jews. And the point in chapter 2, if I might paraphrase without going back and reading the rest of the previous part of the chapter, the Jews were pointing their fingers at the Gentiles telling them they need to do better. You're sinners, you need to correct your life. You're doing a lot of things wrong. And yet they were doing the very same things. So at verse 24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In other words, the Gentiles were looking at the Jews and saying, you're telling us not to steal, but you, you steal. And you're telling us not to curse, and you curse. You're telling us not to bow down before idols, and yet you bow before idols. You're doing the same thing. You're hypocrites. When we practice what we teach, then we are exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Here's the second thing. The scribes and the Pharisees bound on others, but refuse to be bound. They bound on others, but they refuse to be bound. Let's go to Matthew chapter 23 again. Matthew chapter 23. This again is in that scathing rebuke. We just read verses 1 through 3. Let's pick up at the next verse. Verse 4. For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with their fingers. Not one of them with their fingers. In other words, they, put, they, they bind rules upon people. The, the rules of God, they would bind. But then they'd make up rules and bind them on others. Like what? Well, like washing hands. You couldn't eat without washing your hands. That's not talking about uh, hygiene. But there was a ritual you had to go through of uh, washing your hands in a certain fashion, hanging them down so that they drip properly. And if you didn't do that, you were unholy. Not just unclean wherein you might contaminate yourself, but you were unholy because you didn't wash your hands. There was nothing like that in the Scriptures. So the point is, they're binding heavy burdens on others and condemning them for not following that tradition, but they themselves won't even lift some of the burdens. So here's what I'm learning from that. They demand of others what they themselves would not do. Now how can I exceed that? And how should we exceed that? We're to bind only what God has bound. We should only bind what God has bound. We cannot bind any more than what we can find written in the scriptures. So if someone comes to you and they're saying, here's what you need to do. Here's what God expects of you. Here's how you need to live. Ask them where the book, the chapter, and the verse is because we have no right to bind on anyone other than what we can find bound by God. Let's go to Matthew chapter 16. This was a statement that was made to Peter. And the Lord said to Peter, I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? I'll give you the terms of entrance. Peter, you're going to go forth and you're going to preach the gospel. And as you preach the gospel, he adds this, whatever is bound on earth will be bound in heaven. He is not saying whatever you make up, whatever law you make up, I'm going to give my endorsement to that. But what you teach by inspiration is what I have already decided in heaven. How do you know that's what he's talking about? Well, let's go to the next chapter, chapter 18 now in verse 18. What was said to Peter in Matthew 16 is repeated to all of the apostles in chapter 18 now. And the same point is being made. 
Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever is loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven. In other words, what the apostles would be teaching would be doing so by inspiration, Ephesians 3. Meaning that what they bound, God had already decided to bind. What they would loose and not bind, God had already decided to loose. The apostles could only bind what God told them to and only loose what God had told them to. And likewise, we cannot bind more than what God would have us to bind. Let's go to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, Paul warned about another gospel. Let's see what that's all about. Galatians chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace unto a different gospel. He called you to a different, you've moved away to a different gospel. That's a, the word different there means a different kind of gospel. Which is not another What's the word another? It's another word. It's a different word. It's another of the same kind. In other words, this false teaching that you've been exposed to is different from the revelation of God. It is not like the revelation of God. It's not just another version of the same thing of the revelation of God. So he says at verse 8, If we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we preached unto you, let him be accursed. Even if an angel came down and you knew it was an angel coming down from heaven, and he says, this is what God wants you to do, Don't listen to him if it's not in harmony with the revelation of God. Let's go to one more. Romans 14 and in verse 22. What's that about? This is in the context of a Christian liberty that you have. You can eat meats or you could refuse to eat meats. It doesn't matter about that. It doesn't matter either way. And so someone has a strong opinion. I I think you can eat meats and I ought to be thankful and I'll eat meats. And others are, no, 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 no. I have a very strong opinion, and I have a very strong conscience. You should not eat meat. All right? Either way you want to go, you go with that. But here's what you don't do. Look at verse 22. Do you have faith? That is your conscience in this context. Verse 1, scruples. Have it to yourself before God. In other words, don't bind that on anyone else. So you have a personal opinion. You have a strong conviction, but you can't find it in the revelation of God. Don't bind it on anyone else. So when we only bind what God has bound, then we are exceeding in the righteousness, or exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Number three. Here's what they did. They did righteousness in order to be seen of men. They did righteousness in order to be seen of men. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 6. This is back in that context of that Sermon on the Mount that he was preaching, starting in chapter 5. Their focus was to be praised of men. Even when they're doing good things and right things and part of the revelation of God, they're doing things to be seen and to receive the praise of men. Notice Matthew chapter 6 now. Chapter 6, this is that same sermon. He said, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Is there anything wrong with with doing charitable deeds, benevolence, giving to someone in need? No, 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 nothing wrong with that. Is there anything wrong with someone else noticing that? No, 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 nothing wrong with that. Back to verse 1. They're doing it to be seen of men. They want people to take notice of that. In other words, I'm being charitable, but I only want to be charitable so that I'm receiving the praise and notice of man. What, was it wrong what they were doing? No, not wrong what they were doing. It's the motive with which they were doing that. Let's go to chapter 23. Let me remind you, that's that scathing rebuke. We've been looking at chapter 23, beginning at verse 5. 
They broadened their phylacteries, verse 5, enlarged the border of their garments. They loved the best places in the feast and the best seats in the synagogue. Oh, they loved the notice of men. And they liked the chief seat in the synagogue. They, they want everybody to take notice of them. And they loved the greetings in the marketplaces and being called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. Instead of just calling them by the name, they like to be called Rabbi. That's, that kind of puts me above someone else. And notice it, verse 9, do not call men on earth your father. Now let's drop down in interest of time to verse 11. Who is greatest among you but he that shall be your servant? Whoever exalts himself be abased, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. Jesus talks about humility, not wanting to be seen of men. So they did righteousness to be seen of men. Here was their motive, to receive the praises of men, and furthermore, as per Matthew 6 and Matthew 23, to hide their own sin. It hides other things when it makes them look like right, they're righteous. They're giving to someone or they're praying aloud on the street corner. And people take notice of that. Oh, how religious and righteous they are. They're doing things to be seen of men. Now, what does God expect of us? He wants us to do righteousness with the motive of being seen of God. Our focus should be this. Our focus should be to be seen of the Lord. Let's go back to Matthew 6. That's why we didn't spend much time there just a minute ago because we're coming back. Notice in Matthew chapter 6 beginning at verse 1. When you do your charitable deeds, don't do it to be seen of men. This is the law for the kingdom now. Here's the way to be in my kingdom. Not like the five scribes and the Pharisees. He said when you do charitable deeds, do not sound the trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogue and in the streets that they may receive the glory of men, I say they have their reward. When you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand doeth, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your Father who sees you will reward you openly. In other words, your motive is not to receive the notice of men, but to do the right thing. What's your motive in doing that? You want to receive the praise of God and not the praise of men. Well, let's go a little bit further. Same thing beginning at verse 5. When you pray, don't pray like the hypocrites who stand on the street corner, say, uh, that they may be seen by men, but when you pray, go into your room and when you shut the door. He is not arguing against praying publicly, but what's your motive in praying publicly? Everyone to take notice of how righteous, or is it that you're wanting to be seen of God? And let's go to one more passage along that line. Galatians chapter 1 and in verse 10. Galatians 1 and verse 10. Galatians chapter 1. Look at verse 10. We just talked about verses 6 through 9. Now verse 10. For do I seek to persuade men or God? Do I seek to please men? For if I please men, I would not be the servant of Christ. What he's saying is, if I taught a gospel that tried to tickle the ears of man and tried to be pleasing to man, which is what the hypocrite does, the Pharisees did, then he said I wouldn't be acceptable unto God. So what does God want us to do? To do our righteousness to be seen of God, not to be seen of men. And when we do that, we're exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Number four. What did they do? The scribes and the Pharisees, mentioned in chapter 5 and verse 20, shut the kingdom against men. In other words, they shut the doors of the kingdom against men. Let's go back and look at Matthew chapter 23. Here again is that scathing rebuke. Here was one of their problems. Look at verse 13 of chapter. He said, Well, do you scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, and you neither go in yourselves nor allow those who are entering to go in. How'd they shut the kingdom up against men? How'd they do that? They were slamming the door in people's faces. How'd they do that? Their hypocrisy? 
binding things that God had not bound, binding things they themselves wouldn't do. When they're doing things to be seen of men and their motive becomes obvious, all the things dealt with in this context, their hypocrisy, their impurity, verse 28, all of those things shut the door of the kingdom where people begin to see that and say, you know what, if that's the way the people of God's kingdom is, I don't want to have any part of that. So they're shutting the doors of the kingdom. What God wants us to do is to lead others into the kingdom, and we may do that by instruction or by example. Let's notice, first of all, instruction. God wants us to try to bring people into the kingdom. In the Great Commission, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be down. We're to go into all the world and preach the gospel. So I might invite them into the kingdom. I might lead them into the kingdom by instruction. But I might do that by example. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3. This is a, an interesting case. You talk about the power of example. You talk about the power of example. The example is what brings them to the written word rather than the written word driving them to the example. Now, it sometimes may work that way where one sees the written word and they haven't seen a good example yet, but they want to go find an example. 1 Peter 3 is where they saw the example first and are refusing to listen to the word, but they're driven by the power of an example. 1 Peter chapter 3, what's it about? Verses, <coughs> verses 1 and 2 is dealing with a wife who has become a Christian while her husband is still a non-Christian. Notice it, verse 1, that if some do not obey the word, they haven't obeyed the gospel, they without a word, her nagging, her, her pushing, her prodding, may be won by the conduct of the wife. Now we're going to finish that, but just a moment, let's set the context. Here's a case where a woman has become a Christian, she's dedicated and devoted, and the husband isn't interested yet in the gospel. He doesn't care about the gospel. He hears her harp to him about that, and he ignores that. She preaches to him a little bit, and he ignores that. He doesn't care about that. She nags on him and is not going to do any good. So she backs off of that, and what does she do? She just sets an example. Notice verse 2, when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, he begins to recognize this is serious now to her. She's living pure. Do not let your beauty be the outward adorning of the hair and the wearing of gold, putting on a fine apparel, but the hidden person of the heart. He recognizes her emphasis now is not on the outward person. She's trying to be beautiful on the inside. And he notices, and he takes note of that. And furthermore, notice it, verse 5, in this manner, holy women who trusted in God adorned themselves. He takes note of the fact she trusts in God. What does that mean? He begins to pay attention to the fact her religion is serious to her, and he's moved by that example. She didn't shut the door to him. She opens the door by her example. And when we do that, we are exceeding in the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Number five. Here's what they did. They gave careful attention to details while omitting the weightier matters of the law. They gave careful attention to details as being very important and neglected some things that were very weighty. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 23. That's our source. Let's go back to that rebuke where Jesus is telling them what's wrong with the scribes and the Pharisees. So in chapter 23, verses 23 and 24, he said, What do you scribes, Pharisees, hypocrite, for you pay tithe of mint, anise, and cumin? There was nothing wrong with that. 
but it was very minute and very detailed. I want to make sure that of, of, of these items of the mint and the anise and the cumin, I want to make sure that we, we give the, the exact tenth. I don't want to give nine point. 8% of that. I want to make sure I'm giving 10%. I want to give tithe of that. And so they're very precise that we want to follow the letter of the law. But, 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 look at verse, verse, verse 23. These ought you to have, uh, but, uh, back up. They neglected the weightier matters of justice and mercy and faith. What they neglect is the foundation and the basis of the law. The basis of love and respect for God. Please let that go out the window. Verse 25. Blind guides, you strain in the net and swallow in a candle. You make a big deal out of something right small, but something that's a bigger matter over here, you just pass it by as being insignificant. But that's what they did. What does God expect us to do? To give careful attention to both. Are you one that pays real close attention to the details of this command while just completely ignoring another? In other words, I want to make sure I'm at every single assembly and never miss a single one, and yet you're as ungodly as can be in dealing with your husband or your wife. Or maybe I want to make sure I'm, I'm following every detail and I'm the great husband I want, but I don't even attend like I should. What God wants us to do is to do both. Let's get an idea from uh, uh, Micah chapter 6 and in verse 8. Micah chapter 6 and in verse 8. What God is saying in Micah 6... Here is what God wants from man. And notice at verse 6, end of verse 6 and verse 7, um, well, let's just get verse 7. Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rounds or ten thousand rivers of oil? In other words, what does the Lord want us to do? Did, did bring great sacrifice? Well, that's great and that's wonderful. Nothing wrong with that. But here's what the Lord really wants. Here's what the Lord wants, verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you Number one, to do justly. Number two, to love mercy. And number three, to walk humbly with your God. In other words, God requires more than just this sacrifice and worship. What God wants is sincere service from the heart. God wants us to do both. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18. Did God want us to be one that's interested in details? Certainly so. In fact, when we talk about the Christian walk, the Christian is to walk circumspectly. That's in the context of walking in wisdom. Walk circumspectly, carefully, deliberately, placing one foot here and another foot there, making sure your foot is planted in the right spot. That's carefulness, like the book of Deuteronomy so emphasizes. Before we leave that section, let's go to Matthew chapter 12 and in verse 7. What does the Lord want from us? What does the Lord God require of us? And what's interesting is the context in which this passage sits, and that is where the Pharisees are having a fit because the disciples are eating grain on the Sabbath. They thought, that's a violation of the Sabbath. And it wasn't a violation of the Sabbath at all. So at verse 7, God said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, but you have condemned the guiltless. What's he saying here? What he's saying is, that what I want from you is more than an outward form of service. I want true, sincere service from the heart. That's what God wants. God wants both. God wants paying attention to the details, but he wants service that's from the heart. When we do that, we're exceeding in the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Number six. 
What did they do? They were careful to avoid outward sin. But they were corrupt within. Let's go back to our text in Matthew chapter 23. They would clean the outside of the cup. In other words, they wanted to avoid the appearance of being a sinner. They wanted to avoid the outward show of being a sinner. So they make sure they don't look like they're sinners. So notice what Matthew chapter 25, 23, beginning at verse 25. He said, what do you scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites? For you cleanse the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of extortion and, and self-indulgence. Now we'll stop there and we'll come back. We'll finish reading that. Get the picture of someone who takes a dish and it's just full of all kinds of corruption and molded food and they cleanse the outside of that dish and set it up on the shelf but you can't see all that mold on the inside but it sure looks clean on the outside until you begin to look on the inside and you realize it's just as corrupt as it can be. He said that's the way you are. Look now at verse 26. Blind Pharisee cleanse first the inside of the cup and the dish that the outside may be clean also. Verse 27, for you are like whitewashed tombs that appear beautiful outward, but full of dead men's bones. Now verse 28 is the clincher. Even so you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You see, they make themselves beautiful on the outside in their appearance, but they're full of sin. What does God want us to do? He wants us to avoid the sins of the heart. In other words, God wants us to be completely clean. In other words, God wants us to be pure from within. Now, I'm going to make a passing reference to three of these texts. We'll go to 2 Corinthians 12, because those three texts we're going to give detailed attention to in our study tonight when we talk about our thinking. What do you think? That's what we'll talk about tonight. Come back and be with us at 5.30. But those three passages talk about that our sin comes from our thinking within. We'll develop that tonight. That as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. From the heart proceeds evil thoughts, murders. That's those three passages. So let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and in verse 20. What's the point here? God addresses not only the outward sins, but the sins of the heart and of the thinking process. Paul said, I fear that when I come, I may not find you as I wish. Lest there be, notice some things he mentions, contentions, jealousies, wrath, selfish ambitions, conceits and tumults. Some of those are thoughts and sins of the heart. What God wants us to do is to cleanse ourselves on the inside as well as on the outside. And when we do, we're exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. The last, number seven. What did they do? They found fault with others while neglecting their own sin. Let's go back to the Sermon on the Mount. What the scribes and the Pharisees do, they found fault with others while neglecting their own sin. In other words, they could easily look around and spot flaws in other people's lives. That's easy to do. But they ignored it in their own life. You are familiar with verses 1 through 5. Judge not that you be not judged. With what judgment you judge, you will be judged. Look at verse 3. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye and do not consider the plank that is in your own eye? Get the picture that someone has got a little speck or just a piece of dust in their eye and you say, you've got something in your eye and you need to get that out because it looks terrible while you have this beam sticking out of yours. That's the way the Pharisees were. They could easily see your minor fault, but they ignored their major faults. 
So what does God want of us? God wants us to correct our own sin first and then help other people. Let's go back to that same text in Matthew chapter 5, 7. Notice at verse 5. Hypocrite, that is the one who does that, is a hypocrite. They see faults in everyone else. They want to help you, but they don't see their own problems. He said, hypocrite, first remove the plank in your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to remove the speck out of your brother's eye. Understand, Matthew 7 is not condemning taking the speck out of someone else's eye. It is not condemning pointing out the speck in someone else's eye. It is not condemning judging someone else. It is condemning doing that while you yourself are doing much worse. First get yourself all cleaned up. And then you go and help someone else. And when we do that, we're exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Matthew 5.20, Jesus says, Except you exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. What have we seen? Well, they were good theorists, but poor practitioners. God wants us to practice what we preach, which is the doctrine of Christ. They bound on others what they themselves refused to be bound by. God wants us to only bind the doctrine of Christ. They did righteousness to be seen of men. God wants us to do righteousness to be seen of God. They shut the kingdom of heaven against men. God wants us to lead others by our teaching and by our example. They were careful with details and omitted the weightier. God wants us to give attention to both. They were careful to avoid outward sin. God wants us to be careful to avoid even the sins of the heart. And they found fault with others but didn't see their own. But God wants us to correct our own and then help those who may have problems in their life. There may be one or more present this morning who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?